For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And then Mark 16, one through eight. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter what he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Greetings to you all this Easter morning in the name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. So we come not just to Easter today, but we come to the end of this long, year-long trek through the Gospel of Mark. It's been a while, but if you remember, the, the opening words of this Gospel were these, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And now, as Elizabeth just read, we come to the final words of Mark's Gospel, trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Which even if you know this is coming, I preached on this actually last year. I won't do it next year, I promise. It's, it's strange. It's, it's disturbing. There's no resurrection appearances. There's no meeting in Galilee. There's no ascension. There's fearful and trembling and bewildered women who take flight from an empty tomb. How exactly is that good news? At numerous points, I've been trying to make the case that I think Mark is a brilliant writer. And I think some of you have come to the end and said, yeah, I was going to give five stars on Amazon. Now it's three. Like the book, interesting literary techniques, Mark and Sandwiches, very frustrated by the conclusion, will not buy any of the other author's books. So we, we've got two, by the way, authors read those reviews too. Be careful. We've got two options here. I was thinking, wouldn't that be awesome if we had like a choose your own adventure sermon? We're like, you got to choose the option. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like I think next, maybe next Easter. Here's the first option. All right. Here's the first option. We can keep reading the longer ending of Mark nine through twenty. The problem is, I mentioned this last year. Scholars are pretty much unanimous. This was not part of the original gospel. You don't need scholars to tell you that. You've been in Mark for a year now. Read the nine through twenty, and it, it is just does not sound like Mark. Does not sound like Mark's language at all. Plus, even if I gave you that choice, you got to remember that leads to drinking poison and handling snakes. Like you may not want to take that option. Remember in the Choose Your Own Adventures books, things can come to an end really fast. Yeah, I'm getting about a small percentage of the people here with this Choose Your Own Adventure. I'm a child of the '80s and '90s. Your Bible probably says something like the earliest manuscripts or the most reliable manuscripts do not have verses 9 through 20. We unfortunately don't have Mark's original manuscript. We get copies. We actually have copies of copies of copies. There was no printing press back then. So Mark writes his gospel and then very laboriously, we've got to be hand, it's got to be copied by hand. Okay. Copied by hand. And over time, there's slight differences that arise. Most of those are quite minor usually a word or two or possibly a verse. And then we come to Mark, we've got this really weird thing where we've got uh, the earliest manuscripts do not have this ending. And later on they do. And actually it, it, it makes sense later on as scribes are, are copying this, they get to this ending. They're like us, we're like, that's it. There's, they know the other stories. They got the other gospels by this point. It's not surprising that someone draws from the other gospels and acts and fills it in. It's not that we don't have anything to learn from these verses. It's not that these verses shouldn't be in our Bible. It just seems pretty clear that Mark didn't write these verses. It's also not that Mark didn't think the word got out. Martin, Mark wouldn't be writing his gospel if the word had not gotten out. It just seems pretty clear that he didn't write these words. So we've got, at that point, we've got the option of either Mark Mark's original ending was lost. It was the very end of a scroll. It might've gotten tattered and finally ripped off, accidentally torn off and it's lost. Or Mark intended his gospel in this way. And I, I tend to lean this way. Either way, whether it's lost or whether Mark intended it, I think either by divine providence or intentionality, this is the ending we need. Because we've got... We've got four Gospels, and we've got four endings, and we need each of those Gospels. We need uh, Jesus and John calling out to Mary by name. Such a tender scene. Uh, we need Peter's full-out sprint to the empty tomb. We need this, uh, the fish breakfast with the disciples in Galilee. I, 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 we need these post-resurrection, these ideas of what was Jesus' body like. If you remember, he, uh, in Luke, he, 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 he eats some fish. Like, they don't believe it's him. He's like, I'm flesh and bone. And he eats this fish, and he gives us this kind of idea, like, well, what's our resurrected body going to be like? And somehow we're going to be able to eat and yet walk through walls. I want all those things. Because each of those endings challenge us and give us information and encourage us in different ways. And I even think we need Mark's strange, abrupt, even frightening ending. Let's look at it. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they <clears throat> might go to anoint Jesus' body. If you've been tracking with us here in the Gospel of Mark, this is the third time these women have shown up. It's a bit surprising. Until the crucifixion of Mark, 
it's not even really clear if there are women followers, okay? And now at the end of the story, the most prominent characters in the story are not the, the male disciples, they're huddled up in a room quite fearful. It's these women. They've risen to unexpected prominence. These are the women that were there to witness Jesus' death at the cross. They were there to witness his burial, and now they're there to witness the empty tomb. When Paul in 1 Corinthians gives this summary of the gospel, which Elizabeth read at first, of this, the good news he writes, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So three foundational events, Christ's death, Christ's burial, and Christ's resurrection. In Mark, the only witnesses we have to those events are women, which I think actually is one of the better uh, cases that we can make for the historicity of the resurrection, that Jesus was actually physically raised from the dead. Because if you want to make up a story in first century Palestine among Jews, as crazy as resurrection, you do not put in women witnesses. At the time in Judaism, they, they did not even probably have legal status as witnesses. This is a terrible witness to choose. But these are the witnesses that, that show up. And Mark says they go to anoint Jesus' body. They, they, the, if you remember this, the Sabbath is falling. Jesus is on the cross. They, they hurriedly get Jesus off the cross. And it doesn't look like they have time to do the anointing. So they've got to wait now till Sabbath is Friday evening, till Saturday evening. They got to wait till Saturday evening. Now they can go. Markets open up. They can start to buy something. They go out and they buy these uh, spices. These spices are not to embalm. They're, they're not to, to keep a, a corpse uh, intact longer. They're, they're an act of devotion. They're, they're perfuming a decaying body. Okay. Normally this would have been done the burial again. Doesn't seem like they have time. It kind of sparks our memory of, oh, that that beautiful act by the nameless woman a few days before, when she takes that, that, that jar that probably maybe is like an heirloom jar, expensive perfume, and this an extravagant and beautiful act, breaks it and pours it over Jesus. And Jesus says, she's preparing my body for burial. So now these women, they're heading to the tomb, to this body that clearly by this point must be beaten and, and, and quite just battered by this point. And they're doing it out of loyalty to Jesus. They're doing it out of love for Jesus. They're doing, they're going to anoint a dead body. Like we need to remind ourselves, these women are not going to find an empty tomb. They're grieving. They're despairing. They're looking for closure. As my wife can tell you, who studied this a lot more than I have, the handling and washing of bodies is something that's been practiced for a long, long, long time in many, many cultures, including our own in the past including in some cultures in our country today. This very tactile touching of the bodies has, has been a part of, of the grief process, of the healing process when you lose someone. And that's what the women are going to do. They know how to do that. I'm sure these women have experienced plenty of grief in their life. They know what to do with grief and disappointment and despair. They probably know how to lovingly handle a body and perfume it with these spices. What they don't know what to do with is an empty tomb. Esau McCauley wrote in, a, in an op-ed piece this week called The Unsettling Power of Easter. He writes this, Easter is a frightening prospect. For the women, the only thing more terrifying than a world without Jesus was a world in which he was alive. Did you hear that? 
Esau says Easter is a frightening prospect, not typically what we think about in terms of Easter. Earlier this year, in late February, I sat at the bedside of our brother and our longtime pastor, Ernest Martin. And I was there when Ernest drew his last breath. About a week later, some of us were here, and Ernest's body was lowered into a grave, just, just over here, just behind us. I know what it's like to mourn for Ernest. I know what it's like to mourn for the various people in this congregation that we've lost in the last year. I know what it's like to mark this death with Christian ritual of burial. And at least a few times a week, either on my bike or in the car, I get to go on Rankenburger Road and I get to drive by or, or ride by Ernest's house. And I think about the first time that when I visited Midway, I stayed with Ernest with my two-week-old son, Isaac, and my wife, Christiana. And I think about the memories I have of visiting Ernest. I think about this time of year, if you went over to Ernest, it's chilly in the morning. So Ernest is going to have a wood fire going in his mid-90s because he chopped wood last year, of course, like you do in your mid-90s. And then Ernest behind his head, he'd be sitting on his couch, he'd probably be thinking about some biblical or theological problem, not, not problem, but something he'd just been thinking about, because Ernest did a lot of thinking. And then Ernest would probably have a, a, some transplants behind him, because he had a big garden behind his house. I know how to remember Ernest. I know what it's like to appreciate him. What I wouldn't know what to do with is if right now Ernest walked into this sanctuary on Easter morning. I have a feeling I'd be pretty frightened. I have a feeling it would make me tremble. I have a feeling it would bewilder all of us because everything we knew and understand about life and death and how the world works would have been turned upside down. No wonder these women are scared out of their minds. Do you get why this is a frightening prospect? It's a joyful one. We need the joy of Easter. But this is a frightening prospect. But it doesn't just stop there. The empty tomb is only one part of this. There's also this frightful encounter with the angel. We're not told this young man is an angel. He seems to have all the signs of uh, the marks of an angel. We tend to imagine angels with halos and wings, but actually often in the Bible, maybe mostly, I, angels look very human-like. And so that there's this angel in there sitting at the right hand, and they are alarmed. This word in Greek is, is, uh, is the same word that used at Gethsemane to describe Jesus. And we preached through that passage. You remember, that was a distressing, alarming moment in Gethsemane. It's a powerful mixture of shock and fear and of astonishment and distress. Maybe not what we typically think of as with encounters with angels, yet invariably when humans encounter the divine, there's almost always a sense of terror. When someone in the Bible realizes they are in the midst of power and majesty, the first reaction is usually fear. That's why so often in the Bible you hear these words, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Because when you come, when you encounter the living God, usually the first reaction is fear. Think back, even in the Gospel of Mark. Think about this journey. Think about uh, being on the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes in. And the, uh, the disciples, they, they wake up Jesus, and we don't, at that point, we don't hear they're afraid. I'm sure they are. Jesus calms the storm. He rebukes the, the, the winds, and he calms the storm. At that point, they are terrified. It's when they're out of danger of death 
in the midst of Jesus' power that they are terrified. They get to the other side, the garrisons. There's this man who's been tortured by these demons for ages and ages and locked up in chains and graveyard. And Jesus frees them, casts legion into this herd of pigs. Guess what the reaction of the village is? Go away. Go away. They're terrified. Jesus walks on water. The disciples are terrified. Jesus is transfigured on a mountain in front of Peter, James, and John. They are so scared they don't even know how to talk. You see a pattern here? When humans encounter the glory and majesty of God, often they go mute and afraid. Should we expect anything else from these women who encounter an angel and encounter the most powerful divine act of all that Jesus has been raised from the dead? Last week, we saw on the cross in Jesus' cry of abandonment, a suffering God. We saw God through in the, the person of Jesus Christ shows us our divine brother in distress. Our divine brother in distress suffers and therefore he is with us in our own suffering and we need that God. I love the Jesus I've encountered in Mark's gospel. I love the Jesus who just sometimes seems a little baffled. I love the Jesus who gets angry who is frustrated at the injustice he sees in front of him. I love the Jesus who, when little kids with snot on their faces and dirty hands climb on his lap, and he just welcomes them. I love the Jesus who gets afraid. I love the Jesus who's in anguish in Gethsemane. I know what that's like. You know what that's like to some degree. We need that Jesus. We need that suffering God, but we need this God too. We need this God who is completely other. That when glimpses of the power and the majesty and the glory of this God come to us, they maybe even make us mute, maybe even make us tremble. The angel begins to speak, informing the women that Jesus is not dead, but has been raised from the dead, just as Jesus had predicted. The announcement is literally the gospel. It is the good news. Think about what is news. What makes news? Something happens in our world, right? Something happens as a result of that, something is different. The world is a different place. It could be a better place. It could be a worse place. New possibilities open up. And you may not like them. You may like them. But the reality is today compared to yesterday, the world is a different place because of something happened. And the angel is telling them news. He's telling them that at this moment in time, at this tomb in Palestine, there's been a transition between two orders. The world is not going to be the same after this. And think about it, think about it for a minute. Who is receiving this news? It's three people, three women who have this news, who have this incredibly potent germ of information in this little cave. In 1 Corinthians 15, again, when, when Paul's laying out this summary, this is probably about 20 years later, he says, for I received what I passed on to you. The gospel, the good news about Jesus' life and his death and his burial and his resurrection is something that is received and passed on. It's received and passed on. Think about runners on a, on a relay race. They, they, they're going around and they receive the baton and they run and they have that baton for a while and they pass it on. They have that baton for a period of time. They receive it and they pass it on. The gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ that he's been raised from the dead, changes everything. The world after Easter is not the same place as it was before. 
Church historian Jaroslav Pelikan said this, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. See what Pelican's saying here? We, as those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus, we make this astounding claim that history actually pivots at this moment. And that in fact, if this moment didn't happen, nothing really matters. If not, if not before this pandemic, at least now, after over half a million people in our country have lost their lives, it should be very clear to all of us that we are going to die, probably sooner than we thought, we think. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we better seize what time we have in full pursuit of the pleasures of life, of the successes of life through our careers, of the meaning, of searching for meaning, or money, or sports, or entertainment, or adventure, because we're going to die soon. And our bodies are going to waste away. And guess what? People are going to forgive us. But if Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, then nothing else matters. And that reality should shape our lives. We should begin to form our lives around that reality as we give our devotion and allegiance to the risen king. Right now, the most consequential news in history is in this dark little cave in Palestine. And it's been handed over to these these three women who are already trembling because they saw an empty tomb, because they encountered an angel, and now they're given this potent, potent stuff. They're given this lightning in a bottle. They're given this baton, this news, that is then to be taken back to the world that had just crucified Jesus. See, God doesn't disclose the resurrection of Jesus except to enlist these women in a task. It's not enough for these women to just know about the resurrection. They have been tasked with carrying this potent germ of information into the world. No wonder they are terrified. There is power in the message of Easter. This gospel that began in a dark little cave with these three women is potent stuff that's proclaimed to us today. And it's easy for us to miss this. Honestly, if I had like a choose your own adventure for you guys, okay, maybe we should try that. You get to choose your own adventure sermon, and then I get to choose your adventure after the sermon, okay? <laughs> all right, nobody's gonna be here that way. Two options, all right? You hear this story of Easter, and you head out the door with a big smile on your face. You go home to eat a ham dinner, you do your Easter egg hunt, you take a nap. Not a, not a bad option. I would substitute leg of lamb for the ham. But other than that, like it's not a bad option. Okay. Second option, choose your own adventure. You hear this news and you are bewildered and you are afraid and you are trembling. You are sent from this sanctuary running like the women. I would choose that option every time because it would have meant that the glorious and the terrifying power of Easter that shook the earth 2,000 years ago had again shaken us to the core. The three women are entrusted with this most potent, this most explosive message ever. But here's what I love about this message. It's got a personal touch. Because Peter gets a shout out in this message. It's like two, two of my maybe favorite words in all of scripture. Did you notice that? The angel says to the woman, go tell the disciples and Peter. 
Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You're going to see him. Go tell the disciples and tell Peter. The Greek more literally says, go tell the disciples and that knucklehead Peter. <laughs> These are some of the two most hope-filled, grace-filled words in all of the gospel of Mark. Because remember when we saw Peter last? Joe did, Joe, our guest preacher, that we did some good work with the text. Jesus, we know Jesus was denying, but if you look at the text, and I went back and read one of the best commentaries I had, and he agreed with this, what Joe was saying. It looks like Peter's not just cursing, he's cursing Jesus. That's alarming to me. That was alarming to me when I wrote that out. Can you imagine how wrecked Peter must have been at this point? Whatever failure you bring here at Easter morning, like no offense, but Peter's probably one-upped you. Okay? If you are a current follower of Jesus and you have failed spectacularly, this is good news because it means that failure as a follower of Jesus is not fatal. If you are currently not a follower of Jesus and what you think is holding you back is your failure, this is good news. Because not only is there the possibility of forgiveness through Jesus, it's good news because Jesus takes those spectacular failures and he uses them for his purposes. That's what he does with Peter. See, what I love about Mark is from the beginning to the end, Mark never gives us the illusion that the forebears of our faith were superior to us. He never gives us the illusion that faith came easy. He never gives us the illusion that they didn't fail spectacularly, but they kept moving forward. Faithful discipleship does not mean perfect discipleship. This is potent news. Maybe this is frightening news, but this is grace-filled news. And it's our news. This is our news. Here's why, here's why I'm so glad that this sits at the end of Mark in our Bibles. Because it ends with a blank. The story ends with a dot, dot, dot. So you and I, we've been, we, we have literally, most of us, been there the whole time as we've moved through this Gospel of Mark. If you've been with us the last year. We were there. We saw the power. We saw the, the miracles. But we, it wasn't just the women at the cross, was it? It wasn't just the women who saw the sun darken from 12 to 3. We were there. And it wasn't just the women who were there with Joseph of Arimathea to see the burial of Jesus to see where the, the tomb had been cut out of the rock. We were there. And now we're in this dark cave with these three women. It's just after sunrise. We see the place that they laid Jesus' body. And now you've heard the good news from the angel. And now we look, we see the women fleeing, trembling, bewildered, afraid, saying nothing to no one. And Mark looks at us and says, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So Mark forces us into this story. Ready or not, the baton goes to you. This glorious, this frightening, this potent, this grace-filled electric baton has been handed off to you and me. And Mark says, what are you going to do with this? God doesn't disclose the resurrection of Jesus except to enlist people in a task. And our task here is twofold. First, we must break the silence. The whole time in Mark, Jesus, for the, especially the first half, he's silencing people. He doesn't want his identity to get out. But now that Jesus' identity has been fully revealed through the cross and through his resurrection, it's time to break the silence. It's time for this word to get out of this cave, into the world that Christ has indeed been raised. And that baton is handed to you. In me, we carry forth what we have received. 
We have the task of filling in the blank of this story. A couple weeks ago, I heard a pastor theologian named A.J. Swoboda give this illustration I thought was helpful. He says, the gospel we inherit is kind of like a textbook we received. If you, this will date me a little bit, but when I was a kid, at the beginning of school, you get your textbook, you get out this brown construction paper, yeah. you make your cover, right? Okay, that's your textbook for the year, right? And you get to do what you want on that cover. That was what was kind of fun on. You get to draw on it and color on it and do all this stuff on it. You don't get to just tear up the textbook, right? You don't just to get to decide what's in the textbook and what's not, but you, you get some creativity on that textbook cover. And then you hand it off at the end of the year. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been handed to us. The core teachings about Jesus and the church, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus has been raised from the dead, that's been handed to us like a textbook. We've received it, we pass it on. It's not our job to rip it up and start over. But these teachings and this message have been handed over and entrusted to us for a moment in time, and we get to put a cover on it. We get to creatively and contextually uh, take this good and explosive and potent and at times frightening news to the world around us. That's our first task. Our first task is to take this message to the world. That the, the news about the resurrection of Jesus is not just for our benefit. It's not just for those of us who have been privileged to stand in this dark tomb. It's for the benefit of the world. Secondly, we need to encounter Jesus Faithful disciples don't just stand in the empty tomb. They seek the Jesus who has gone before them. Okay, Jesus is going before them and calling them there, calling them to Galilee. One of the reasons I'm so glad we have this strange ending is that this is kind of the ending for those of us who don't get to encounter the physical Jesus. Okay, like I love, like I said, I love to be Mary in the garden and hear my name spoken by Jesus. I can kind of imagine that. Maybe you've even heard it in your head, but I've never heard an audible, my name spoken. I'd love to even be like Thomas. I'd love to put my hand in the wound. I'm planning on being in Galilee next fall, and I'd love to meet Jesus on the shores of Galilee and him cook me up a fish breakfast. That'd be awesome. In his physically resurrected body. But I don't think that's going to happen. Mark's ending, as one person put it, is for those of us who won't get to have those experiences. We won't get to be with Jesus' physical presence the way his disciples and the others did. We have an empty tomb on Easter morning, but no physical Jesus among us. And yet the promise is the same. The promise is the same that Christ is on the move, that Jesus of Nazareth is on the move and he's ahead of us and he's calling us to meet him in Galilee. And he's telling us, if you move out in faith, you're going to find me. And that has been my experience in discipleship. The encounters with Jesus typically don't happen on the sidelines. They typically happen when we're in the nitty gritty of discipleship and we bump into the risen Lord. They happen as we move out in faith from the empty tomb, not as perfect followers, but as faithful followers. Let's pray. God, we recognize the humble, sometimes overwhelming task that we've been given to be given such explosive news of resurrection. But we don't always even know what to do with it. We're sometimes frightened by it. 
We're sometimes frightened by what this news is going to mean for our lives, how it will turn our lives upside down. And yet we trust that it's good news. We trust, Lord, that you have gone before us, that you wait for us in Galilee, that you are on the move and you call us to follow you. I pray as we move out with this baton, with this beautiful, potent news that you've given us, that we might be faithful to the task of proclaiming it to the world. And that along the way, Lord, that you would meet us. You would meet everyone sitting in this sanctuary and listening on Zoom, that you would bump in, find places for them to bump into you, Lord. Times that we're struggling, times we're not sure what to do, times we, we need an Ann Peter. They may find your grace and your good news. Ask us all in the name of our risen Lord Jesus. Amen.